Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you guys for coming back for another episode of The Places You'll Go. If you enjoy the podcast and want to get involved in the community or take a guess at our weekly photo teasers, like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ThePlacesYG. If you have your own amazing stories to tell us, feedback about the show, or ideas for upcoming episodes, feel free to email us at theplacesyg at gmail.com or visit anchor.fm forward slash theplacesyg to leave us a text or voice message. Finally, if you want more people to find out about how awesome this show is, follow us on Spotify and Overcast and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Now, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. This is a Wandering Hippies production. We have returned for another week. This one, we're both lacking some serotonin today. Yes. We had a wedding reception last night that was a little too much fun for one of us. (laughs) It was me. Chance had to rip himself out of his $50 dress shirt last night. Because the buttons, just they weren't doing it for him. Apparently. I don't know. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's why I don't drink like that normally. Fuck that shirt. Right. That shirt had it coming. I was mad I had to buy it in the first place, so <laughs> might as well destroy it, right? <laughs> well, anyway, we are, like I said, we're back for the fourth episode of the six weeks of Halloween. We're getting so close to the end. But for the last three weeks, we've been dragging you guys to some of the strangest places in the country, and we finally took a darker turn with Vernal last week, but this one might actually be just a little darker uh, than a place that's purported to be home to evil shamans. Because the terrible things that have happened here, there's definitely no question about whether or not they've happened. Nobody can say, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. Because they are. So let's head for Shiloh National Military Park. That's Lakin. And that's Jan. And these are the six weeks of Halloween. <laughs> the places you go. Well, as I'm sure Lakin knows, I have been yearning to do an episode at a Civil War battlefield. I thought you were going to say urinating. Well, that too. And I finally got my excuse to both urinate and do a story. (laughs) I'm going home. Oh, wait. Oh. I am home. So, where exactly are we? I said it a minute ago, but you clicked on the title. You know where we're at. Shiloh National Military Park is actually two different battle sites. One is the Battle of Shiloh. Actually, technically three, I found out. So, one is the Battle of Shiloh in Shiloh, Tennessee. And the other is the Battle of Corinth. Both battles of Corinth. There was the There's the first battle, the Siege of Corinth, and then the Battle of Corinth. And then, that obviously is in Corinth, Mississippi. And then on the kind of the far western portion of the of the Shiloh side of the park, there's also um, a preserved area that's for the Battle of Fallen Timbers that not that many people really know about, and it doesn't really actually have a lot there. So you really uh, there's like a marker, and that's about it. But mm. it's kind of sad. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah Shiloh was so much better. Uh, yeah, because I think like 2,700 people died in that battle. They're the like, Battle of Fallen Timbers, but like, that was a nothing. drop in the water. They're yeah, like, oh, it's Legitimately, fine. yeah. We have more soldiers. <laughs> that's, it's fine. That's how they were with every battle. The, uh, oh, so I guess I should point out that Shiloh, Tennessee and Corinth, Mississippi are actually about 20 miles apart. So as we're doing these recommendations, we are kind of, we're probably doing most of them around Corinth because it's the biggest city in that area. And it still is real small, but... Naturally, the most notable event in the history of either of these cities is what brought us here in the first place. But before we get to that, I do have to tell you a little bit about the history pre-1862. Oh. Nestled within the boundaries of of the park are actually the Shiloh Indian Mountains. These were probably built sometime around 1000 current era, and most of them were probably platforms for important buildings. 
These peoples that lived here were a kingdom that was closely related to, if not a satellite community of the larger Mississippian complex of kingdoms. And they disappeared uh, from the area sometime around 1350 CE, meaning that they inhabited these lands for 350 years, which I, that always baffles me to think about because the U.S. has only been a country for 245 yeah. They literally lived in this little area on the Tennessee River for 105 years longer than we've even been a country. What Isn't is, that wild? What does CE stand for again? Current era. Oh, it's that's just, right. It's just that's the new version of... BC. Or, yeah, well, of, uh, AD. AD, yeah. Yeah, I know. I just... I, I'm not in school, so, like, not reading it over and over again... I don't have, like, that constant reminder like yeah. I did with, like, B.C. A.D. Yeah, yeah. So after these peoples left, the precursors to what would become the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations likely traveled through the area and possibly lived there temporarily. Sometime in the 1600s, 1600s, the Chickasaw developed a distinct culture separate from the Choctaw and established a vast territory just before... European incursion. Dude, I'm talking. It's not my thing. Dude, we lost some serotonin. We lost, we lost brain, some cells. brain cells last night. Corinth and Shiloh represent the area where the Chickasaw were living when the first Europeans arrived. The Chickasaw origin story explains that they emerged from Nanilwaya, which is a great eastern mound that was built sometime around 300 CE and actually remains an important religious site for the Chickasaw nation. And it's uh, located further east in Mississippi. Hmm. Or, I'm sorry, further west in Mississippi. Okay. They were designated as one of the civilized tribes by Washington, and the Chickasaw were quick to convert to Christianity, uh, begin to build European-style dwellings, and even build schools to teach their children English and prepare them to become involved in a mixed society. And let me guess, we still fucked them over. You, yeah, yeah. Early U.S. governmental leaders were so dedicated to the relationship that they had with the nation that Fort Hampton was built in Alabama to actually protect the Chickasaw Nation from encroaching settlers, making it one of only two forts that were ever built to protect Native Americans rather than the other way around. Right. And the Chickasaw even fought alongside Andrew Jackson and the United States during the Creek Wars when they fought against the Creek Nation. Over time, any number of treaties were signed, slowly giving up their land until the former ally, their former ally, Jackson, signed the Indian Removal Act into law, forcing the Chickasaw onto the Trail of Tears. So after the Indian Removal Act became law, their long-held allegiance with the U.S. only afforded the Chickasaw leverage to be paid about $3 million for their lands in the southeast. Uh, and on Independence Day in 1837, thousands of Chickasaw gathered in Memphis to begin their march to the Indian Territory. More than 500 would never actually make it to Oklahoma. Naturally, they became one of the first civilized tribes to declare their allegiance to the Confederacy. Really? Yep, because the U.S. abandoned them when the war began, basically, out there in, in Indian Territory. And uh, the Confederacy promised them basically big chunks of their land back if they would side with them. So they did. Damn, that's pretty gnarly. Did they actually get it back? The Confederacy lost. (gasps) Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Was that real? Wait, have we told the South yet? Does the South know? (laughs) Did you have me suckered for a minute? (laughs) No, clearly they don't. (laughs) Just not kidding. Anyway. (laughs) So after the removal of the Chickasaw, mass development of the 6.4 million acres that they had ceded to the United States began in 1853, and that's when Cross City was founded. Cross City, bitch. (laughs) Cross City, bitch. Cross 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 City, bitch. (laughs) It was named this as it sat at the intersection of rail lines in northeast Mississippi, and eventually it was renamed Corinth in honor of the Greek city of the same name, which was also a crossroads city. We don't know much about the origins of Shiloh, but Pittsburgh Landing, which is very nearby, 
was founded by a man named, well, actually, it's not a town anymore, but it's very, it's almost what Shiloh is. It was founded by a man named Pitt Tucker, um, and a small community formed around that little riverboat landing that would eventually be called Shiloh, or Place of Peace. Pretty ironic, if you ask me. Super. (laughs) Of course, there's two major events that took here that are the reason we've come, and really the reason tens of thousands of people every year come. On April, the armies of the Tennessee and Ohio, both Union forces that were commanded by General Ulysses S. Grant and General Don Carlos Buell, respectively, converged on Pittsburgh Landing in the hopes of taking Corinth and cutting off Confederate supply lines. You control the water, you control the war. Now, they were actually trying to control the railroad. You control the railroad, you control the war. That's right. (laughs) Albert Sidney Johnston's Rebel Army of the Mississippi moved north from Corinth and launched a surprise attack on the Union armies. And all in all, more than 103,000 soldiers of both the North and the South met on the field of battle between April 6th and April 7th of 1862. Johnson had hoped to knock knock Grant's armies out of Tennessee before Buell's forces could completely arrive and reinforce him, but was repelled uh, thanks in part to a heroic stand known as the Hornet's Nest which uh, there's a lot of actual controversy around that right now because it's the argument is that the hornet's nest wasn't actually all that important, even though it's like the place that is known as like a heroic union stand to hold off the rebel army so that they can regroup. And I learned that a gentleman who was in uh, one of the Missouri divisions that was on the union side, at the hornet's nest. Mm-hmm. After the war was over, obviously, and it became a, a national park, he was named the official historian for the battlefield. And they think that he intentionally made it sound like what happened at the hornet's nest was a little more important than it was to make himself sound a little cooler. Yes. <laughs> to not let his fans down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. To flex on his Insta followers. That's right. <laughs> Everybody got at least 100 likes. At least. But either way, thousands of Union soldiers stood their ground at the Hornet's Nest aided by artillery so that the remainder of the Union lines could fall back and regroup. There's also a place known as Bloody Pond and one known as the Peach Orchard. There were both very intense fighting that was used to try and hold off the rebels so the remainder of the Union army could regroup. To break the Hornet's Nest, Confederate General Ruggles assembled more than 50 cannons to barrage General Union General Wallace's forces at the Hornet's Nest. And this would become the largest military barrage to ever take place on North American soil up to that point. It was the largest assembly of artillery ever. Wow. Yeah. Eventually, the defenders of the Hornet's Nest would be cut off and surrounded, and Wallace was actually killed trying to lead his men to break out of the barrage. But they lost, and were most of them were captured. But the stand worked. And the Union regrouped. The following day, the Union counterattacked with Buell's reinforcements bolstering their numbers, and this charge blew back the disjointed rebels, forcing them to retreat into Corinth. The Union army survived, but this battle would be the most costly day in U.S. history to that point. 23,746 men died in a 48-hour period. More than died in any of the wars that the U.S. had previously fought to that point. Another 2,000 more would die in the month-long siege of Corinth that would commence later in April of that year. And by the end of May, the Confederates were exhausted and simply just no longer able to hold the critical rail junction, and they fell back, giving Corinth to Grant and the Union. Then from October 3rd to 4th in 1862, the Battle of Corinth began when General Earl Van Dorn and his army of West Tennessee assaulted Corinth where General William Rosecrans and the Army of the Mississippi was amassed, which the Army of the Mississippi was the Union Army. Okay. The Army of the Tennessee was a rebel army. Okay. Though the armies were evenly matched after two bloody days of fighting, the Union managed to repel the rebels and held the city, marking the final conflict that would take place in this area. Through these three battles, the 
earthly forms of more than 32,000 Americans were destroyed in this small, remote era area of Tennessee and Mississippi. And to put that into perspective, that's more than 10 World Trade Center attacks over the course of four days, basically. Jesus. So this is a very heavy place where so many people have died. General Grant surveyed the battlefield during the fighting and had this to say, quote, I saw an open field in our possession on the second day, over which the Confederates had made repeated charges the day before, so covered with dead bodies that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction, stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. Only two other battles in the American Civil War would prove more deadly than Shiloh, and that is Antietam and Gettysburg. This place has seen so much pain and loss that it undoubtedly has had an effect on the land. But aside from the terrible things that happened in 1862, this area is, of course, nestled along the Tennessee River, and it's in the rolling hills of southern Tennessee, northeast Mississippi. It's a very beautiful wooded place to visit, and it actually is very peaceful now, very quiet little area. Not a heavily trafficked national park, so, it, you know, a good option if you're interested in checking that out. But also hate people. Right. My dudes. <laughs> so when we might finally make the trip to Shiloh, because I do want to see this place, I want to see Shiloh, Antietam, and Gettysburg. But when we finally make this trip, where shall we stay? Allow me. I have the River View and Retreat. This three-bedroom and two-bathroom vacation rental is found right on the Tennessee River. Nice. The house has a large panoramic view of the river and a large front deck. Enjoy kayaking, boating, or fishing right in your backyard. I'm really digging the house's aesthetics with its somewhat nautical cabin theme, but also beachy. Oh, yeah. They didn't go too. Right. Yeah. Too too far. Too hard in the paint. Yeah. This is located about 20 miles away from Shiloh National Military Park. And it's not like in a town. It's right. on the river. Yeah. That's Retreat. super cool. Yeah. Okay. So for recreation, naturally, my recommendation is going to have to do with the National Park. And there's a ton of really cool things to do while you're there, including two interpretive centers, one at Shiloh and one in Corinth, both of which will teach you a lot about the three battles that took place here. Well, four, I guess. And more importantly, the regular people who were involved in it and who lived in the area at the time. And it's just a lot of very interesting stuff to learn. There are ranger-led programs that'll take you through the battlefields and afford you or your kiddos the opportunity to learn so much more about this area and the American Civil War in general with the awesome rangers that work there. But those aren't actually going to be my recommendations. Y'all know I love a drive. And... A drive where I can also learn something I'm even more in for. So, the Shiloh Battlefield has a 12.7 mile auto tour route with 22 stops at famous places like the Peach Orchard, the Hornet's Nest, and the place where Albert Sidney Johnston died. He was the the commander of all the Confederate forces in the country at the time, but he died there. I saw that. Oh. In my searches. Nice. Yeah. Uh, This is a tour through the beautiful countryside that is southern Tennessee and affords you the opportunity to experience the places that were turning points of this incredibly important battle. And if you want to learn a little bit more about things to do at Shiloh National Military Park, visit mps.gov forward slash 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 S-H-I-L. (laughs) I'm struggling. So what fun things to do are there? Ladies, download a book or your favorite podcast. Men, here we go. (laughs) Fair. Check out the Shiloh Visitor Center for all that hot goss of the park. (laughs) Stop by the bloody pond or the bloody pool. The pond turned in... What are you doing with my gourd? I'm playing with it. Be careful. Okay. I'll be gentle. Thank you. No, I didn't steal a gourd. (laughs) Why would you say that? <laughs> anyway, stop by the bloody pond or the bloody pool. The pond turned into a sort of weird gray area where both Confederate and Union soldiers would drink and clean their wounds in. Sounds super sanitary. <laughs> Side note, but kind of cool. How did it get its name? This is the bloodiest battle site on 
one of the bloodiest battle sites on American soil. So, yes, it turned red from blood. Yeah. But in the hottest summer months, it also turns red. Algae? Yes. Oh. Yes. Shiloh Indian Mounds, which Chance already said, because he loves walking on my recommendations. It's part of the history. (laughs) Jive turkey. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) This is an archaeological site of the South Appalachian Mississippian culture. It has a stunning trail to walk on with informative content, says one Google user. Very cool. Corinth Contraband Camp. This camp serves as a memorial to the former slaves who resided and sought freedom in this area. For thousands of slaves, fuck me. Flavor, flavor. <laughs> For thousands of sl- oh my god. For thousands of slaves, <laughs> I did it. Thank you, everyone, for your applause. I I need that right now. For thousands of slaves, this was the first step to freedom. Which, this uh, this is actually very interesting to me. I would yeah. love to see this. And then I have the Corinth Interpretive Center, which Chance has also stepped on. But this is a 15... <laughs> Just kidding, I love it. <laughs> this is a 15,000 square foot building with all things Civil War. Ladies, wear your comfy shoes if your man is a history buff. It's gonna be a long ride. Am I right? That's you. There are interactive exhibits and multimedia presentations of some of the horrific battles that went on in and around the Shiloh battlefield. Cool. Okay, so it's time for dinner. And I think it's well established. I love sending you places that are strange and unique. And Abe's Grill in Corinth might be one of the most eclectic I've ever recommended. This place is plastered with license plates from all over the country, money from around the world. And warm southern smiles. Uh, They just have this wild mix of everything that you could want to eat, no matter the circumstances, from barbecue, pit barbecue, to seafood, to a good old-fashioned hamburger. You're going to leave Abe's happy, that's for sure. But even if the food isn't great, the friendly staff provides a truly one-of-a-kind atmosphere. I'm serious, the building is so weird and cool. Just like, it's so cool. And that'll probably be the, stuff like that'll be like the reason that you fall in love with this place. And I can't wait to come check it out. So uh, if you want to learn more about them, check them out on social media because they don't have a website. Beer Palooza time. It's Beer Palooza. Hurrah. Hurrah. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I got, guys. Well, this is super rural Mississippi, so if you thought that there was even a single brewery, you would not be wrong. There isn't one. (laughs) I even expanded the search radius to like 30 miles and couldn't find shit, so I decided to recommend the only bar that doesn't look kind of scary to enter and almost has perfect views. Reviews. Reviews. (laughs) Shout out to the runner-up, which is Safari Bar. Which is, from what I can tell, basically a nightclub more than anything, since it's only open three nights a week. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Just kidding. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. (laughs) I was like, what? But it's also (laughs) LGBTQ plus friendly and uh, clearly run by a savage because they just tear apart anyone who leaves a bad review. Absolutely. But I can't recommend something that's not open at least six nights a week, so sorry. My recommendation is going to be the Conservatory by Vicari. And don't worry, it doesn't look quite as pretentious as the name sounds. I was literally just thinking, I was like, that sounds pretentious as hell. <laughs> they have a super cool patio on the roof to relax and enjoy the beautiful weather in northern Mississippi. And you can kick back with a glass of wine or another after-dinner beverage. They are mainly focused on wine, but they do have a really great menu, albeit an expensive one. But if you love paying for ambiance, this is the place for you. I love paying for (laughs) ambiance. It really does look like a super cool place to chill with that rooftop patio. Yeah. Um, So I would be sure to check them out at conservatorycorinth.com. And if you can't spell that, you probably shouldn't be going there anyway. So we're going to start our first story. Uh, (laughs) Damn, dude. (laughs) Don't come for our listeners like that. I'm kidding. Okay, so, 
I'm going to go first this week. My story's kind of like paranormal and spooky-ish. I don't know. We'll see. Fuck it up. I don't know. There were a lot of really good hauntings here that it was potential to do a story about. But I'm like, I, I'm i just going to like, I'm going to write something. I'm just going to get creative with this one. So hopefully it's halfway decent. I feel like all of the things that happen there could be combined into like a great story. Probably could. Yeah. Yeah. But instead of like combining any of those, I'm just like, I'm just going to write like an original story and do my best to make it spooky and, and cool to listen to and whatever. So hopefully it's good. This is called We Should Have Just Camped. With Halloween just weeks away, we had some big plans. We were going to go to some of the most haunted and terrifying places in the country, capture irrefutable or at least compelling evidence of the paranormal, and show the world. I mean, that was our job. Me, my wife, Lena, her sister Kate, and our close friend and cameraman, Tuck, had spent the last ten years wandering the country and documenting evidence of the strange and unusual. Recently, we had made enough money from a documentary that we filmed in the woods of Minnesota that we were finally comfortable making this a full-time pursuit. Armed with a plethora of cameras and a 1995 Winnebago that we got one hell of a deal on, we decided the first show we were going to put together after making a career of seeking out the paranormal needed to be a big one. We met up at Tuck's house in southern Missouri and hatched our plan. It was going to be a bit risky at some points, but... If the evidence that we were reasonably certain we could gather ended up being half as good as we hoped, then we are going to have a heck of a show on our hands. Now, there are some places that simply can't be investigated. Some are closed due to their age and state of decomposition. Some places, the owners don't have any desire to be part of paranormal research. And at others, entering at night is expressly forbidden. Our plan was as simple as it was dangerous. We're going to find a way into about a dozen of those places across the country where people had never investigated or hadn't investigated in a very long time. My thought was it's easier to beg forgiveness than to ask permission, right? Yeah. (laughs) The first stop was just over three hours from Tuck's house, thus his home being the jumping off point. Shiloh National Military Park. We were sure that this would be a hot spot for paranormal activity. Tens of thousands of people died on that land nearly 160 years ago, and if there was any place more ripe for paranormal and less investigated, we'd yet to stumble across it. Now is an important time to say that our paranormal research isn't singularly minded. That's why I use the term paranormal research, because we look for literally anything that's outside of what most people consider normal. Some look for proof of ghosts and proof of the afterlife, some for Bigfoot, others look for UFOs. We just look for everything. Sure, we assumed that the remnant energy, or ghosts as most people call them, of Civil War era soldiers would be present on the fields and in the woods of the area given the great loss of life that had taken place so long ago. That's not how we planned on approaching it. It's not how we approach anything. Lena is a sensitive. She has the ability to feel, see, and understand things that others simply can't. In the Minnesota documentary, it was her intuitions that led us to the precise place where we needed to be. She could feel the presence of strange things long before any of us knew they were there. Kate had come into her own as a practitioner of Wicca. She could use what she had learned in her time studying the craft to open windows when doors closed, bring entities into our plane of existence, and to lift the cloaks that they used to disguise themselves, and occasionally to protect us. I do the research. I study every strange sighting that's ever took place in a location where we're going to investigate, even if it's seemingly unattached to the reason we're there in the first place. I investigate the lore of the Native Americans that were there for thousands of years. Hell, I even dig into every murder or disappearance that has ever happened within 20 miles of our chosen spot, so that no matter what happens, I can provide context and connect previously disconnected dots. Tuck has the incredible power to ensure that every single strange thing that Lena sensed, I researched, and Kate revealed was caught on film for the world to see. Naturally, our propensity to investigate at night makes his job a little bit harder, but he's damn good. We use this combination of talent to uncover anything and everything we can at whatever location we arrive at. Often we find evidence of things that others have not, and things nobody's ever looked for in the first place. 
We rumbled into Hamburg, Tennessee in the creaking old RV and wound down the aptly named Rockpile Lane. It was barely big enough for a single car, let alone a 36-foot RV with a Jeep hooked to the back, but we didn't have a lot of choice. Red Dog Campground was somewhere along this wagon trail of a road, and this was going to be the best base camp for us if we hoped to be successful in our mission. Out of nowhere, the campground boasting just a few RV sites popped up on the banks of the Tennessee, and we settled into the place that would serve as our home for the next few days. Mm, Spooky. (laughs) We arrived at the Battlefield Visitor Center on the opposite end of the park, careful not to take any of the roads that we planned on using later on. We partook in the usual tourist activities at the center, listening to rangers tell stories about the massive battle and glancing over artifacts found throughout the battlefield, even snagging a map that would give us the necessary information for a self-guided tour of the park. This is an important place, Lena mumbled as she ran her hand over glass containing artifacts found at the indigenous mounds located on the east edge of the park. Tuck had been hovering near her with his cell phone camera rolling as full-on recording equipment wasn't allowed without prior permission. And, well, you know, beg forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I replied, staring at the Union battle flag that had been shredded by bullets. Some terrible things have happened here. No, not like that, Lena said, smashing her eyes shut and cocking her head to one side as though she were listening for something. There is, um... Like, more. Like, more important than that. I don't know. Just really important. Tuck zoomed in on her facial expression and locked eyes with me. We both knew when she reacted like this, it was rarely a mundane investigation facing us. Dude! Kate yelled from across the museum. There's a rune on this, whatever it is. She was usually boisterous and rarely could contain her excitement over even the smallest things. Her shouting turned a few heads and summoned a disapproving look from a ranger near the entrance. Tuck and I strode over and looked through the display case at a small cloth with an M embroidered on it. Though it had clearly once been white, it was now discolored yellow-brown with the bottom half splattered and stained deep crimson. It had apparently been the handkerchief of a fallen confederate. Within that bloodstain was something faintly drawn on the cloth. It may have been bold black ink at one point in time, but 159 years had done it no favors. Most would have completely overlooked it, choosing instead to focus on the other far more intriguing personal effects that surrounded the kerchief and the display case. But leave it to Kate to find that faint mark. To boot, the marking was rather conspicuous. To the untrained eye, it didn't look like anything more than a poorly drawn lowercase t. But Kate wasn't the untrained eye. She whipped out her phone and snapped a picture. It's an old rune, probably like Elder Futhark, but I'm not sure. Then as as abruptly as she had called us over, she wandered off exploring more artifacts. Beep bop. (laughs) Just beep bopping around. Beep bopping around. We hopped into the Jeep out front and I looked over to Lena. You think you're ready? She took a deep breath, closing her eyes, and slumped her head back onto the headrest. Probably not, but we've come this far, right? Places like this were always hard on her. But she was as dedicated as any of us to finding answers. We headed out on the self-guided tour of the most pivotal points of the battle, planning to select our exact point of investigating for the next few nights. From the backseat, Kate jolted forward. Need or hardship, she thundered, nearly causing Tuck to drop his camera. Jesus, Kate, Lena breathed. Can you give us some friggin' warning next time? Sorry, she said meekly. I found the rune. It is Elder Futhark, like I said. And its meaning is need or hardship. I just don't know why it would be on an old bloody rag some racist was carrying when he got murked. (laughs) (laughs) Can it be used to summon things or what? I asked. Hmm. It probably could be, but I don't think like that. It really depends on when it was put there, she said, proceeding to bury her face back into her phone. Lena flung her arms up in visible confusion, and I said, No, we're going to need more than that, bud. (laughs) Well, I don't know a ton about runes, but I'm pretty sure that if it was put on there after the blood was already on it, it could be used to summon some kind of help, but not like an entity. And it would have had to have been paired with something else, like an offering or more runes. Of course, the blood could have been the offering. Or, hmm. Tuck zoomed in on Kate and looked up to Lena, who looked very concerned. Maybe, Kate said, leaning back and turning her gaze out the window, 
maybe it wasn't his his handkerchief. Maybe it was an offering given by someone else. I don't like that, Lena said. We were all painfully aware of how easy it would have been for any number of practitioners of darker magic to use massive battles as a guise to find human offerings. Does anything say where the handkerchief was found? As dark as it was, if this man had been some kind of offering or had summoned some kind of help, I wanted to know where it happened. Yeah, all that stuff was found at the at the hornet's nest. After taking most of the driving tour, there was just one battlefield stop left. As we wound up Eastern Corinth Road approaching the hornet's nest, Lena's Demeter changed. She had been uncomfortable the entire time and had sensed a heavy presence, but any time we visited someplace where so much death had taken place, that's what happened. Now, though, she seemed to be having trouble keeping her eyes open. She continually rolled her head from side to side and was visibly upset. We're getting close to the hornet's nest. Do you think you're going to be all right? I asked. Lena breathed deliberately and composed herself. Yeah, let's do this. Tuck, ever aware of potential content, asked, What are you feeling? Uh, it's just, like, really dark here. Like, we're in a dark place, but we're moving further into the dark. Like, to the center of it. Has the darkness always been here? Lena contorted her face. Mm, I I don't know. It seems old, but there's just so much going on. I just need like a minute. Sheesh, Kate whispered, shaking her arms as though she was getting rid of some unseen grime. I can feel it too. It's weird here. Kate usually wasn't overly sensitive unless the energy of a location was really supercharged, but she had one hell of a way with words. <laughs> I think this is going to be the place, I said, spreading a map out on the hood. We can get right to this spot from the campsite if we come up the federal road. There's no park gate there. They've never had the budget for it. Thanks, Obama, Kate chirped while wandering a few yards down the sunken road. (laughs) So good. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) If we go about it right, nobody's even going to know we're here. Why this spot, Tuck asked. Well, if it's radiating this kind of energy, because I can feel it too, then we're going to get some sick evidence. By this time, Kate had wandered better than a football field down the sunken road toward the southeast. Despite the fact that all of us carried a GoPro to vlog, and Kate was probably the most religious about using it, she had suddenly stopped, and the fact that she was staring around in what seemed to be confusion caught Tuck's attention, so he jogged to her to capture the moment. You good? he asked. Yeah, I think so. Kate continued to look around the wooded path. Were there other people around? Nah, just us. I swear I heard, like, yelling or something. It really didn't feel like I was here for a split second. Like you were here. I mean, like, I don't know. I was still here, but not now. Back at the car, Lena climbed out and looked around cautiously. Since Tuck was gone, I snagged a camera and assumed filming duties. What do you think? I asked her. It's just... Wow. She shook her head aggressively, attempting to clear it. It's hard to see most of the time. By see, she was talking about with her third eye. But when I can see, it's like I'm there. It's like so clear. We took the next day off and relaxed along the Tennessee River, preparing ourselves for what we were sure was going to be a challenging investigation. Lena had been unsure about investigating the hornet's nest, but as we sussed out the details of the plan, she got a little bit more comfortable. We decided that we'd enter the park on the Federal Road and wind up Hamburg-Savannah Road to enter on the southeast side of the Hornet's Nest near Bloody Pond. We would investigate the area where the ritual, for lack of a better term, had probably taken place. Kate had determined that it must have been over by the Bloody Pond from the way she was feeling. But even she wasn't confident that we'd gather much information there, so we figured if we got that out of the way early, if there was nothing to be found there, then there was plenty more we could build up to. Additionally, the plan was to simply stop if it got too exhausting for her or Kate, and that eased Lena's concerns. So by 5.30 that evening, we were packed up and ready to roll into the park after closing. Now, I would strongly advise against anyone entering a national park after it's closed. First off, it's incredibly illegal. Secondly, the things that happened to us led to our inevitable conclusion that there may have been a very good reason that they closed the park at dusk. But we had a show to film, and nothing was going to stop us that June evening. 
We pulled up just on the south side of the bloody pond and unpacked our equipment. Finally, our cameras were rolling and darkness was falling over the former battlefield, and our excitement mixed with a little bit of a foreboding feeling. Where was the ritual at? Tuck asked Kate, who was wandering from where we had parked toward the bloody pond. We're getting close. I can feel some kind of energy. Me too. It's strong, but I can't see what it is, Lena said, looking around in the dark as though she might see some kind of a marker that would give her more insight. It was right around here. Can you feel it? Kate looked over to Lena as she stepped further into the timber near the edge of the bloody pond. Yeah, Lena kneeled down and touched the ground. He was calling for help and uh, using the energy of the pond. She closed her eyes to better channel the events that had taken place there. He knew the magic, but he was scared and in a hurry. He was a federal, Kate interrupted as she leaned on a tree with her eyes closed, and an immigrant from Europe. Yeah, yeah. Lena replied, almost sounding excited that the two of them were using their talents to bring the event into light. Ireland, I think. As they honed in on their understanding of what had happened on that spot nearly 160 years earlier, Tuck and I were beginning to sense something darker happening. Something we didn't really have an understanding of, but the girls didn't seem to notice it. From behind me, a scream, as clearly as any of our voices, rang out in the forest, causing both of us to swing our cameras in that direction. Did you hear that? I breathed. Yeah, is there someone out here? Tuck asked as he jogged in the direction of the scream. The girls were completely unbothered and were continuing the process of channeling, so I stayed put, recording them. So much death. All, um, like all his friends... Like, all the guys that he was with when the fighting started were all killed, right around here. I see them, and him. He's right here. Lena pointed to the edge of the pond. He wanted to go home so bad, Kate said, now dropping to her knees and placing her hands on the ground. At that moment, there was a flash of light that seemed to come from all around us, lighting up the forest, but not in the way that light usually would. Tuck returned, still recording, all around us as we both tried to figure out what was happening. Did you see that? It was like daylight for a minute, he said, sounding somewhat panicked. I continued to film the girls. He was crawling, looking for something. Lena stood up and walked slowly towards the pond, watching the ground in front of her, like she was following someone. Kate looked behind where Tuck was standing, but that guy saw him. She pointed, and I swung my camera to look in that direction, and for a split second... I thought I caught someone, but I couldn't be sure. He was coming to kill him, Kate said. At that moment, the light flash happened again, but things were far more clear this time. The forest lit up, just like daytime. I could smell gunpowder in the air, and the forest floor was littered with equipment and bodies. I saw the Union soldier crawling towards the pond, and the rebel walking into the woods following the other man. We were all still there, but those men didn't seem to notice us. A cannon roared from just up the sunken road, and as quickly as that it all started, the flash was over. What the fuck is happening, Tuck asked as he recoiled in reaction to the thunder of the cannon and repositioned to show Kate. I'm glad you saw that too, I said, making sure to keep shooting Lena as she drew closer to the pond. I thought I was losing my friggin' mind. He was desperate, sure he was gonna die, and was willing to do anything to live. Lena said as she continued to follow someone who wasn't actually there. He was going to die. That man was going to finish off anyone in the woods. They didn't have time to take prisoners. Kate walked towards Tuck and the spot where we had all seen the Confederate, and where she apparently still did. They were busy trying to break the hornet's nest. As Kate uttered those words, the ground shook, and the air seemed to ripple around us, and the thundering roar of cannons again filled our ears. This time it was so much louder and almost gave me an instant headache. The girls didn't react. They'd been in this place for a while. Only Tuck and I seemed to be lost in that dark forest in Tennessee still. He knew the magic, but didn't have what he needed. Lena stopped walking. He needed cloth, the blood of an enemy, ink, dried mushroom, and a vessel for it to use. Kate turned to look where Lena was standing. He was trying to summon something, but... He knew he couldn't. That's why I didn't recognize the magic. He made up a new spell. Lena knelt again and reached out as though she was trying to touch someone. 
If he couldn't summon what he wanted to, he could at least call for some kind of help. The flash happened again. The smoke of the cannons filled the forest. The air and the ground seemed to be continually shaking. We could feel the percussion in our chests, and it was again lit by broad daylight. This time was different. We weren't snapping back to the darkened wood of our time. We were at the Battle of Shiloh. We could clearly hear Ruggles' artillery barrage of the hornet's nest, and the two men were back. Behind me, Tuck and Kate watched the Confederate come toward the pond with his bayonet fixed, where Lena and I stood. We watched the Union man pull a handkerchief from the pocket of the dead Confederate laying near him. He pulled out a pencil and scribbled the rune we had seen on the cloth and dipped it in the blood that was coming from a wound on his own leg and held it tightly in his hand. He began to mumble something, but it was impossible to hear over the roar of the cannons and the rifle fire coming from beyond the pond. Kate yelled at us, but it was muffled by the sounds of the battle. I turned to look at her and Tuck and saw that they were running towards us, and I noticed that the Confederate was jogging too, straight to us. Between cannon shots, I could hear Tuck and Kate yelling, but I couldn't piece together what they were saying. I caught the words us and summon. What happened next was very difficult for me to comprehend. Tuck reached to the ground and grabbed a broken limb and threw it at the legs of the Confederate. The limb struck him, tangled him up, and caused him to crash to the ground. What had I just seen? I was sure that our experience was something supernatural, but not real. We were actually there this time. We could interact with humans at the Battle of Shiloh. Everything came to me at once. I whirled around and yelled to Lena, He's summoning us. She looked from me to the man who took her hand and said, Please help me. Lena pulled a belt off the dead confederate to her right and cinched it around his leg to stop the bleeding. I turned to see the live confederate getting back to his feet and realized that he could now see us too. I had no idea what to do. The soldier was armed with a rifle and a fixed bayonet. What chance did we stand? The confederate looked at Kate and Tuck who were standing behind him and then to me and Lena. He decided, apparently, that completing his mission to kill the wounded Federal was the best course of action, and he began running towards us, bayonet forward. Tuck took off at a sprint, too, grabbing the broken limb he had thrown earlier. I grabbed Lena, preparing to pull her away if he got too close, but she was unwavering in her mission to help the Union man. He was now just feet from us. Tuck had closed in and raised the limb in the air, bringing it down with all of his might on the Confederate's head. The soldier collapsed to the ground and rolled onto his back, aiming the rifle at Tuck. I reacted without knowing what I was even doing. I just saw someone preparing to kill my friend, and I jumped into action. I reached to the ground where another bayonet laid and grabbed it. I lunged toward the Confederate, and the confusion caused him to fire into the air. He attempted to shove me off and pulled a knife from his belt, swinging it at me. Tuck crashed the limb over his head again, and I drove the bayonet into his chest. Lena smiled at the Union soldier and said, Go home now. Mm. Another thundering volley of cannon fire filled the air, and darkness flashed back around us. We were back in that dark night in Tennessee, in our time, where we had begun. Our ears were still ringing from the cannons, and I was laying on the ground. Tuck was standing near me, panting with the limbs still in his hand. Did I just kill a man 160 years ago? I asked, looking at my blood-covered hands. Lena looked over to me and said, No, you saved a man's life 160 years ago. Kate stumbled up as her eyes were still adjusting to the darkness and leaned on a tree. We should have just camped. I love it. I just thought that was, uh, I don't know. Thought it, I didn't really know where I was going with it most of the time. I loved it. Just kind of pieced her together. So I hope you liked it. There are a lot of reports of people claiming that they can hear cannon fire. Drums. Yeah, drums. See people marching. Yep. A lot of very strange stuff. And again, the park closes at, dawn, at dusk. So don't go into the park after dark. But did you see, uh, I don't know if you saw this in your, like, research but a lot of people sneak in there like a lot of like civil war buffs yeah there's a lot of unmanned 
entrances to the park. <laughs> and the Civil War buffs will go in like early mornings before the park opens, mm-hmm. and they'll just kind of get a, like a feel for what the atmosphere was like. Obviously, there's no gunpowder. There's right. no banging. There's no drums. There's no dead people. There's not tens of thousands of bodies littering the ground. Yeah. But, like, they go in there and they just, I don't know. I, I kind of found that interesting. Yeah. That people, like, snuck in. Especially, like, Civil War buffs, you know? Yeah. You don't expect them to be doing, like, devious things. Like right. Like, sneaking into the park at 7 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. But that was my story. And we're going to take a quick break, and it should be Lakin's turn. That's my turn. And we're back <clears throat> from our wee little break. We didn't actually really take a break, break in the fourth wall here. We just sat here, and I switched recordings. I didn't even go pee. Ooh. I might regret it later, but right now, I'm feeling good. Feeling hostful. Feeling good. Like, like I, I should. should. Oh, probably. copyright strike. <gasps> oh. Just kidding. <laughs> it's because we were probably never hydrated today. Yeah, I really haven't had enough water, that's for sure. But, it's time for your story. Oh. <laughs> I titled this story, The Tennessee Wild Man. Nice. I've... I'm a little familiar with this. Not very, but... Not like the Civil War, like, hero, the wild man. No, I know. Okay. Because that's also that. Yeah. Okay. If you are really into the strange and unusual, you have probably heard at least one folk story about the Appalachian Mountains. Lore passed down from several generations about strange occurrences in the woods. Folks there live by their own set of guidelines and rules to stay under the radar of whatever is out there. Today we are going to talk about one particular creature that roams around the area. This creature is bipedal and stands at about 7 to 9 feet tall, covered in gingered hair, and has piercing red eyes. It is often compared to a skunk ape because of its musky scent. Musky scent might be putting it lightly, though. People who have witnessed this massive creature said that it smelled like a rotting carcass. Jeez. Yeah. Its terrifying war cry could possibly be more memorable than any smell. The sound goes from guttural to high-pitched hollering. 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 The wild man has agility and speed on his side, and of course, massive strength. Some cryptid wiki authors seem to believe that the wild man is Sasquatch's mortal enemy, and says that there is evidence that the two fight over territories. However, I found no references. (laughs) Like, take that for what it's worth. Right, right. The wild man is known to be aggressive. More aggressive than a Sasquatch or Bigfoot. They are known for attacking dogs and trying to abduct women, but mostly failing. Okay. This creature has been seen several times over the years, but around the time the Civil War is when activity really increased. Could this be because of the battle bringing him up from the Appalachian cave systems? The sounds of battle waking him up, trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Or am I going down a rabbit hole by myself on this one? (laughs) I'll I'll be with you on the rabbit hole. Thank you. I knew you would be. Thanks. I don't know about our listeners. All 12 of you. Thank you. They'll be there. You tuned in, so you're coming down the rabbit hole. Buckle up. And please keep your hands in all appendages inside the ride at all times. Ah, this is America. Do what you want. Okay. (laughs) So... I want you to imagine yourself as a Confederate soldier. You're making your way back home from the Battle of Shiloh. You're lucky to be alive, for so many lives were taken. The smell of gunpowder still lingers in the air. 
or it quite possibly is embedded into your nostrils at this point. You lost your friends and family, and yet you're still here, not feeling all that lucky. As you march along with whoever is left in your company, there is no time to grieve. There is only time to regroup and strategize. You're exhausted, but you keep pushing until it's finally time to set up camp for the night. Sleep comes fast for some. Others, like yourself, are still hearing the blast from the artillery over and over again. Like a bad dream that you're dying to wake up from, but you haven't come close to falling asleep. Lost in your thoughts, you hadn't noticed that everything went quiet. No crickets chirping. How long has it been this silent? An eerie feeling overcomes you. You hear the snap of a limb and you jolt up. You think to yourself, what? What was that? You jump up and investigate the sound. Your rational mind telling you it's a deer, but the deep crack you heard didn't sound like a twig or a stick being stepped on. Walking towards where you think you heard that sound, you trip over a large branch that looked like it has been ripped from a tree. You stumble, but you're able to recover without falling. When you look up, you see something running away. Something very tall and seems to be human, or almost human. Before you know it, your legs are dragging you after the man you just saw. It's probably a deserter. The general would be mighty proud of you for bringing him in. Deserting wasn't taken lightly and could ultimately lead to death. But you're mad at So could not deserting. (laughs) You're absolutely right. But you're mad. You're mad at this person that you've never even met. Mad that this deserter didn't see the things that you saw. You're catching up to him now, but the closer you get, the less it looks like a man at all. You start to slow down and it stops and turns to look at you. This was no deserter. This creature is covered in hair. Its face looks similar to a man. You stop immediately after you see the red eyes and realize that you have made a terrible mistake. The smell enough to make you double over and wretch, but fear has you frozen. Aggression is in those red eyes. Aggression that you have seen in many men. You try backing away slowly, but it comes at you full speed ahead. You wake up to two of your comrades dragging you back to camp. Your body aching worse than it did the day before. The feeling of swelling on your eye and a large gash on your arm. What happened, they asked. You know they won't believe it, but you tell them anyway. When the general asks you where you have been, the two soldiers intervene before you can even say anything. They say you are fighting off a single Union soldier, and no one ever speaks of it again. You may never tell another soul, but the smell and the sight stays with you for the rest of your days. Don't go chasing deserters. You might just become someone's lunch. Oh, that was good. Thank you. Yeah, I have heard the Kentucky Wild Man stories. Or... They also call him the Wood Booger. Yeah, the Wood Booger. That's my favorite name for him, I personally. <laughs> I didn't find that out until, like, the end. Yeah. But I was like, the Wood Booger, how fucking cute is that? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's usually lumped in with Sasquatch. Absolutely. When they're, when they're talking about, like, Sasquatch sightings, they usually include sightings of the Kentucky Wild Man or the Wood Booger or the Skunk Ape. There's also a... I can't think of what it's called, but there's a, there's one in Mississippi that's like the, 
I don't know, some kind of, they call it some kind of swamp monster, the something ape, something swamp ape or something like that. And it's like, the story is that it's an escaped gorilla from a freaking circus, like, okay, so there's forever like a, ago. There's like a story about the wild man. There's actually a lot of stories. Of, and like, so I think it's just kind of like indoctrinated into their lore. Like, mm-hmm. About um, circus, they all call him a circus freak, but I'm guessing he's like a circus ringleader who captured it and put it on display until it finally escaped. Mm. But they've been around for 150 years, at least, probably longer. Yeah, probably before that. If they told stories during the Civil War of the Tennessee Wild Man, then the stories were probably around for... Which... You know, like brings us hundred years before that, right? Which brings us to believe that it's not technically, it wouldn't. This one wouldn't be one hundred fifty years old. Well, right. This would be. It would have to. There has to be like an offspring, a breeding population. Which yeah, I could go on for days about throwing out theories and being. You guys would be like, whoa. Take it back a notch, Lakin. Never. We don't, we don't need your conspiracy theories, but... That's what we do. That's this show. Yeah. Basically. But, I think it is very interesting how there were, there weren't many sightings before the Civil War. There were some, but not many. And I just think that, like, maybe the commotion kind of rattled him up. And... To look at it purely from the perspective of, let's say, a, um, can't think of what it's called, but there's, like, an actual field of study for people who study, like, lore and legends and stuff like that. Realistically, somebody like that would say, well, the reason the sightings picked up so much is that people who had never left their hometowns oh, were more- now were now thrust into, into situations where, where they were around... 20, 30,000 other guys from all over the country. Right. And they started telling these stories and right. they got told and retold and told again. And that, and there's like a lot of people in places where there's all, there hasn't been a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of maybe a factor so too. You, so you can look at it one of two ways. You could look at it like maybe the activity that took place during the Civil War riled this thing up, or maybe there were more people in these places where it was to see them and report them. Or you can look at it purely from the, if it's a fictional story, it spread because all these men sat around campfires every night, sometimes for months without no fighting yeah, and had nothing better to do than to tell weird stories and play cards and gamble. You could also say that they're sleep deprived. They had just literally come out of one of the bloodiest battles in American soil. Yeah. And take that for what it's worth mm-hmm. because they have seen some things mm-hmm. in our over rationalizing minds. And that was pre us understanding PTSD at all. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure that's when it was still called shell shock. Or, yeah, I feel like there's something or, else like battle fatigue or something. Maybe. I cannot yeah, I remember. remember either, from, but... I swear it was from your podcast, your Civil War podcast that you listened to, but I can't probably, remember. Probably. But I listened to a Civil War podcast that all of you guys should listen to. It's fantastic. The Civil War, 1865 to, or 1861 to 1865. Look it up. And on today's book recommendation. <laughs> on today's book recommendation. Quote. Quote. In quote. <laughs> but anyway yeah anyway I, uh, I really want to go see Shiloh I think it would be I think it's one of those places that's important for us all to experience because it is such a pivotal point in American history and yeah I would like very much to go visit also Tennessee's gorgeous I love, I and love so Tennessee. is Mississippi honestly northern Mississippi northern. southern Mississippi's not great no offense, um, Southern Mississippians. I just know that when we go, that I will have some serious anxiety because that's how because I always... Because you're sensitive. That's how I always feel at, like, battle sites and... She had a lot of trouble at Little Bighorn. I did have a lot of trouble. It wasn't like... I mean, like, I... 
I was fine. But yeah. it was just like very heavy, very sad. Yep. Yep. So many people went to fight a war over like what? It was hard. Yeah. And that's how I imagined Shiloh being. Mm-hmm. So But it's a it's a very beautiful area. It's very rural, very remote. And it's pretty far off uh off the interstate. So when you're there, I'm sure that you are going to meet some really cool rangers and experience some pretty cool stuff in the park. Yeah. You might even take a little trip on the uh, the Tennessee River. You will probably eat some amazing food. Drink some delicious beer. And hopefully. These are the places you'll go. Yeah.